Welcome to another edition of the Columbia University Sports Podcast, The Cusp Show, where we talk about the business of sports and disruption and entrepreneurship and media and all different kinds of things around our business, both for sports and entertainment. I'm Joe Favorito, flying solo today without my co-host Tom Richardson, although our able-bodied producer, Tom Cerny, is back in the producing chair. Tom, welcome back. Thank you. Feels good. Yep. Here we go. So we are, just to set kind of a little bit of the tone, not that we get into days and weeks, but we are towards the end of the the spring semester of 2019 at Columbia. Beautiful spring day. So what a great day to talk about the business of soccer. Our guest today is someone who I've known, I don't know, six or seven years since you were like six years old, (laughs) Um, is Brendan Hannon. Brendan is the, make sure I get this right, Vice President of Marketing and Communications yep. for the LA Galaxy of Major League Soccer. Yeah, thanks for having me, Joe. Brent, good to be here, Tom. Yep. And Brendan, thanks for coming up to the beautiful Morningside Heights campus for the first time, right? Yeah, no, it's, uh, I used to live, um, when I was in New York, I lived on 109th in Amsterdam, so um, I've been up this way, but I don't think I've spent much time here on Columbia's beautiful campus, so... Uh, beautiful spring day, so nice to be able to walk around and see everybody sort of reveling in the sunshine. Before they get their final grades. So. <laughs> anyway, so Brendan, obviously some great things to talk about, about the growth of MLS. You've been in two major markets. Well, you've worked in New York, but worked for two MLS clubs, Chicago and, and now the Galaxy. Uh, the market's changed a little bit since you first got to the Galaxy with LAFC now in. Um, and you're all of 30? 31? I'm 37. 37? I just look 31. 31, 26, <laughs> 19. Um, but I've had a pretty interesting kind of career path. So why don't you kind of walk us through how you got to where you are, especially going through Chicago and then to L.A. and where, we, where you are now? Yeah, I, I don't think that I've necessarily taken a traditional path. Um, we like non-traditional. Yeah, so, so I, I got my uh, degree in creative writing and English literature at the University of Colorado at Boulder. Um, I Go spent, Buffs. Spent a solid six years there, uh, smelling all the roses. Um, uh, following school, I, I wrote some uh, short fiction and some poetry and uh, was published in some sort of minor literary journals, nothing that anyone would have ever heard of. Nothing to do um, with sports, though. And nothing to do with sports. Um, uh, from there, I worked for a year as a, at the Make-A-Wish Foundation, um, and I was a wish grantor, so I was in charge of some of the sports-related wishes and, and sort of all of the different wishes that didn't include Disneyland or Hawaii. Where was that? Um, that was in Denver. Okay. Um, so and where'd you I, grow up? I grew up in Denver. Okay. So I, I knew that I always wanted to be involved in sport, and um, I'd really fallen in love with soccer at a young age. I, I played the sport. Um, I, I really admired the globalness of the game, and um, I think you know. Th- I think this ability for it to to permeate all different parts of, of culture, and for it to be um, you know something that that entered into socioeconomics and uh, religion, and and I think I think the greater class system, um, and and that that always intrigued me. So. Uh, after a year at the Make-A-Wish Foundation, um, I got offered an internship to, to work for Major League Soccer here in New York. Uh, I'd never been to New York City before. Um, uh, Will Coons and Dan Cordemanch, uh, uh asked if I could start in a week. Hmm. Uh, I said, give me 10 days. I uh, gave my parents everything that I owned. I uh, packed up a suitcase and a pillow. 
um, and I moved to New York. Do you still um, have the pillow? I still have the same pillow. Okay. Um, uh, I, I lived in a friend of a friend's storage room, hanging my one gray suit on an upside down bicycle. So, and, what year was that? Do you remember? Uh, that was two thousand eight. Right. So wow. Um, uh, quite quite a bit ago. So I, I I worked as an intern, and then you know after six months they kept me on as a quote unquote consultant, um, which paid slightly better. Just made made sure that I didn't have to walk as many dogs or hmm. uh, do as many odds and ends around the city. So, so you did other things to kind of make money, correct? Yeah, I I walked dogs. Um, I fixed stuff at, at some people's houses. It was sort of the the heyday of Craigslist. So mm-hmm. there was an opportunity where you could pick up a buck doing whatever. Um, I had bartended uh, at university, so picked up some gigs doing some stuff like that, whether it was private parties or um, catered events, and uh, you know tried to keep my overhead as low as possible because I wasn't getting paid a whole lot of cash and. Uh, I was living in one of the most expensive cities in the world. Just curious, before we go past the MLS experience, what do you do? You know what it was that made them pick you over the probably hundreds or thousands of resumes that they had? You know, I I would like to have thought that it was my superior intellect and uh, good looks. my my good looks and ability to converse and, and interview well. Um, I was lucky enough to, to have gone to school with uh, a, a, a girl. Uh, her father was the president of DC United, Kevin Payne. Oh, sure. Um, and he had passed along my resume, which I think helped. Um, I later, you know, came to found, find out some years later over some beers that um, I probably wasn't the first choice, and they needed somebody to fill in and. Uh, my name was at the top, and it was tied to somebody that, that they respected, and uh, so they picked my name out of the hat, and uh, I think that it, you know, not knowing that, but I think you get into those situations. Sure. and um, it's what I, you make of it. Yeah, and I, I came here and wanted to, to work as hard as possible, and uh, basically, you know, my parents thought I was crazy uh, to leave Denver, and I'd had some jobs there, and... Uh, at this point, you know, heck, I was 25 years old, so I was the old intern. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that you know, when I left, what I said to my parents, and I think the reason that they bet on me, uh, is I said, hey, if I, if I go to New York, I think that I'll get a job in soccer. Um, I'm almost sure of it. I don't know if it's going to take me six months or two years, but I think if I go there and I just decide that I'm going to do everything I can to meet whoever um, and put myself in positions um, that that I'll be able to to get a full time job and, uh, and and hopefully it'll work out. And I think uh, as somebody who had spent six years going to university, they weren't that sure of my uh, ambition. Um, and so when when I eventually got here, I wanted to to make sure to sort of follow through on that promise. And um, it took a little bit of time and. I uh, worked some, you know, a, a couple of different jobs before landing in that uh, career in soccer. But um, for better or worse, it's helped me over the past 11 years. And I look at that sort of foundation and, you know, I still, you know, I think the, you know, Commissioner Garber at MLS still recognizes me from when I sat, you know, outside of his office as mm-hmm. a, an intern. And, you know, I saw him for lunch today. And I think, 
you know, that, that speaks to your ability to try to make a, an impact on people and uh, make yourself known. So at that point, just out of curiosity, what were some of the, the things you were doing? Because that was really MLS, even though they were digital first and one of the first adopters and realized that's where their audience was, what were some of the, the communications tasks that you had now, then, and do you think they've changed since then? Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess the the tasks then were probably, you know, pretty PR 101 um, associated. Uh, yeah, I mean, you were clipping articles. Um, you were clipping articles from print outlets. You were doing the same thing with online. You were compiling a, you know, a newsstand that's being sent around to the leagues and executives. Um, you're helping to do things like write bios, write very rudimentary press releases, you know, like this week in MLS, mm. um, taking all of those things off the plate of someone uh, who's much more senior and doesn't have time for those things. And uh, admittedly, I was pretty green at press release writing, so um, you can probably attest to some of that as well. Uh, and, and you're, we'll get to that in a minute. <laughs> and, and I think you're, you're trying to, to learn some of those things. It, and then I think that there were some uh, opportunities you had to pitch. Um, you know, they, they gave you an opportunity around MLS Cup to say, hey, here's, you know, here's how you build a pitch and uh, here's how you go out to, to some outlets. Um, I, I remember... For the 2008 MLS Cup, uh, the Columbus Crew were playing New York Red Bull uh, at the Home Depot Center at the time in Los Angeles. Um, And my first hit was uh, in a really small town paper in in North Carolina. Um, And it was about Will Hesmer, the, the goalkeeper for the crew. And, you know, the circulation of this paper was probably, you know, 10,000. Um... And I remember running into Dan Cordemanche's office, you know, so overjoyed that I had landed a, a hit in, like, you know, the Hill Valley, you know, Tribune or whatever it was. Um, and and Dan, I think, was very sweet at the time to uh, congratulate me, even though, you know, what I had done was of little to no impact to, well, uh, on what they were doing. But I think that that... It was reaffirmation that I was doing the right thing and that I felt, you know, you felt this, like, positive energy that came from uh, trying to share the story of of soccer in the United States and trying to put yourself in a a position where um, you could work with a media member and and they would say, yeah, we'll write about that. And I think that that, you know, it's a little bit like a comedian getting their first laugh at an open mic. I think that there's that that buzz and that feeling that you get from it that keeps you engaged in in the process of of public relations and uh, so that that I think put me on a good path and made me excited about the work that I was doing great so you go from so you're there walking dogs fixing toilets and collecting some money and you're living in a tool shed and with the gray suit <laughs> and then what then what happens when you realize now did you have to leave or you realize you better I think I got to a point where they were hiring for a manager of communications mm. they weren't positive if I had the necessary experience for that um, and I got some good advice um, from a gentleman Will Coons who was the director of communications for MLS at the time and and he said hey 
you know, you've been here a year, uh, you're going to end up essentially doing these tasks until we find a manager and until we say, ah, this person has more experience than you, we're going to go with them. Um, so he recommended that, that I leave. Um, and, and that's always hard. It's hard to, you know, it's hard to leave summer camp and, mm-hmm. and you've gotten to know some people. You've, you've networked yourself in a certain way. You, you became tight with that intern class. Um, and so he said, but, you know, I think I can help with a, a soft landing. Um, the U.S. Open is coming up, and uh, you can work there for the next, you know, the duration of the tournament. U.S. Open Tennis. Um, U.S. Open Tennis, mm-hmm. um, which was an unbelievable experience. So that's um, 2007? That's 2009. 2009. Who, um, who was the men's winner, do you remember? Uh, the men's winner was uh, Juan Martin Del Potro. Okay. He defeated Federer uh, in the final, the, the Tower of Tandil, and I, I remember it being you know, such a massive deal. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think Venus, Venus was the, the women's winner. Um, but it was, it, it was the, the cool thing about that um, and sorry, as an aside. No, uh, we like aside. Yeah, the same. The individual sport is obviously very different than team sport, um, and and the U.S. Open does a, a fantastic job with their interns. I mean, you're making a lot of copies, uh, you know. But you do, you know. I remember meeting and talking with George Vesey and, mm-hmm. and thinking like. Wow, this is you know so pivotal. Yep. Um, this is so unique. Like I'm at the same place that George Vesey is at, um, and, and to me that you know it, that was so exciting. Um, but they they would allow you to to have you know some of the the lower players. They would put you in a press conference room with, and and they teach you the the protocol. You know, take questions in English, then take questions in the uh, the the player's you know native tongue um and i was matched up with the, this young uh danish player named caroline wozniacki and so she's pretty good yeah she so she you know in in the first press conference you know i'm nervous and an idiot and you know it's me her and two danish journalists she's just won the the first round and i stand up there and i say uh, Miss Wozniacki, you know, the winner of the first round over so-and-so, will now take questions in English. <laughs> and the Danish journalists look at me, and I'm, like, frozen. I'm looking at her, and she's looking at me, and she's like, you know, who's this chubby-faced idiot? Like, take it. And, and, you know, then I'm like, all right, we'll take questions in Danish. She answers the questions. We walk off. Not much to it. She wins in the second round, and I've been paired with her again. I do the same thing take questions in English obviously no one's asking questions in English still nobody's there afterward she was and I mean she's probably at this point a, a number of years younger than me but she pulls me aside she's like hey buddy it's fine if you just want to take questions in Danish I appreciate your professionalism That's but great. um she made it to the final that year and so I, I sort Did of become the good luck charm. I accompanied her all the way up into WTA. I think takes over around the quarterfinals mm. or the semifinals, and then I was just sort of escorting her. Um, but I, I do remember in, in the, the tournament had ended. She had lost in the final to to Serena, I believe, um, and 
I'd taken the media shuttle back and I was walking across town. I was living at, I think, 109th in Amsterdam. And I was walking across town towards the 7 train. And she comes out of one of these hotels in Midtown. And she's in a ball gown, like, or dress to, to go out. And she recognizes me, gives me a hug, thanks wow. me for, for the tournament. And so that that was like, you know, I, I had always admired tennis. And everyone at USTA was so nice. And it was an opportunity to, you know, I think see all of this stuff happen mm-hmm. up close. Um they also gave you an incredible meal card. And so for somebody who was skin broke, it was an opportunity. You know, I think I had a couple of dates out there where my shift ended at four. And then I knew that I had $40 on my meal card so I could buy a girl a, a Grey Goose and soda and some Indian food from the, the great setups that they have out there. The benefits of the U.S. Open. Yeah, you know, so, that, I mean, those are the things I think when, when you're an intern, you're uh, you're willing to put in all of the time, energy, and effort, and it's nice to sometimes have a few of those takeaways. And you were paid for for the hey, opening. yeah. I think I think the, the which is one of the great things about and you have to commit to really three weeks or three or four weeks. I, I and you know I think that this has changed within Major League Soccer, but I think the three weeks at the U.S. Open paid me more than yeah. the entire year. Uh, at Major League Soccer paid me because it was, at MLS at the time it was more of a, a living stipend. Mm-hmm. It was $500 a month and, and so this U.S. Open gig was uh, uh, in, in my mind extremely lucrative. And it was I, I, correct me if I'm wrong because I remember it's an hourly rate so if Jordan Schlachter or um, whoever it is decides that you want to stay if, if Chris Widmeyer says or um, whoever's there, Seth yeah, Sylvan says, Daly, yeah. Jane, Jane De- uh, Gene Daly says, you know, I need you to stay an extra three hours. That's cha-ching, cha-ching, cha-ching. For yeah. So, the, yeah, I mean, I... Except they take that FICA thing out of it. Yeah. It, so, so. <laughs> yeah. It, um, you know, I, I had the... They give you the luxury of choosing whether you want the morning shift yeah. or, or the evening shift. And um, I had asked a couple of people and, and ended up, you know, deciding on the morning shift. And you had to get there early. You, you yeah. probably had to be there for you know six a.m., six thirty. Uh, you're one of the first people on the grounds. You're you're making all the copies. You're mm-hmm. you're making sure everything is prepped um, for the day. The real positive is that you're done at four. Yep. And you, I mean, you have a credential, and you can just watch tennis. Um, and you get great gear, by the way, too. Yeah, Amazing probably gear. probably shouldn't. You know, tell Gene, but I mean, I spent most evenings just You're wandering, wandering into center court. Mm-hmm. You know, setting up uh, next to to Jay Z and um, Leonardo and he, DiCaprio, and, and they keep of, asking you about you. They kept saying, "That's the guy with <laughs> Caroline was was the accurate yeah. first year." <laughs> yeah, um, so you know, and it's funny for those who don't know the Open. I remember when when I was there, it was the year we opened Arthur Ashe Stadium. And Greg Aiello, who just recently left the NFL and is actually doing some stuff around our Columbia program now, came in one day and we gave him kind of the, the lowdown of the press rooms and what they looked like and what we were doing. And he said, you know, the equi- this is really the equivalent of doing the Super Bowl every day for two weeks. Yeah. And it's, it's really an amazing experience. There's no media event like it anywhere in the world. Um, you know, people compare it to the New York City Marathon, but it's just a different vibe and... It really has not gone away. It, as it's become more global, 
even though tennis has slacked off a little bit in the U.S., it's still the place to be in the world for those two weeks. Yeah, it, it, I mean, the I think the press operations of it all, and, and it opens your mind, I think, uh, as you've seen events. And, I mean, I've, I've been, you know, to some very rudimentary MLS events at the time, um, the, their draft and, and some things like that. Uh, but when you see the amount of credentialed media at mm-hmm. the U.S. Open and, and you see, you know, people from every country around the world there to cover the event um, and not to take it back to the cafeteria, but y- you would see, you know, uh, the, the guys from Japan are, are done for the day. Their deadline yeah. is over. So the, so they're going through with just a tray of Heinekens. Mm. And, and you, you get a certain stipend that you can utilize. And so, the, you know, they were using that for, you know, four or five beers before they jumped on the I think, I the think they've shuttle. actually changed that. Now. But anyway. <laughs> uh, which is a real it's shame. free coffee, but there is yeah. free coffee now. Uh, good. Uh, anyway, so you're at the Open. That kind of runs out in early September. Um, and then what happens? You know, then I I was, you know, you're applying for jobs all over the place. Um, And I got an opportunity to be an unpaid intern at a a sports marketing firm um, called The Leverage Agency, Mm -hmm. um, one in which at some point you had some affiliation with. Um, And it was, you know, I'd never really done the whole agency thing. I, I went in and I think... You know, in hindsight, you have a better view of exactly what was happening. Um, but, you know, I just thought that it was that's how agencies, you know, certain agencies were run. Um, but, you know, I was very thankful. Uh, the guy named Ben Sterner gave sure. me an opportunity. What, what um, were some of the clients that you worked on? Do you remember? We did a, we did a couple of different things. Um, I remember uh, AVP sort of in their first iteration. Yep. Um, so I was doing press work and then digital stuff for them, um, providing recommendations on social copy. I think Twitter at that point uh, was very new to everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, we had a, there was a collaboration between uh, Top Rank Boxing and the History Channel. Makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah. yeah, a lot of history in boxing. So um, I, I had worked on a couple of those different projects, mm-hmm. and then. Some of it is just, you know, trying to, um, you know, get the agency in in specific trades and see what you can do to, to grow the... So, so it was a communications position. Yeah. Right. I mean, they also didn't have a website. Mm-hmm. Um, so I ended up building out a website for them and, you know, managing the CMS and trying to, you know, provide recommendations for how they could you know, get the word out of the brand and the brands that they were working with. So you're there for how long? You know, I wasn't there for very long. I would say probably four months. Okay. Um, I had, you know, been applying and uh, I interviewed for a job with the Philadelphia Union in in Philadelphia that I didn't end up getting. Um, I interviewed with a Chicago Fire Mm. um, and they were looking for a press officer. Um, The... Uh, the person who'd actually taken the manager job at MLS, uh, Lauren Brophy Hayes, um, had left a, a position open there, um, and so she had called and said, "Hey, I think that you'd be a great fit for this." So that goes um, back to the relationship you have at, at MLS. Yeah, and at MLS, they you know they they put me forth and mm-hmm. said, "Hey, we think that this would 
you know, this this guy knows his stuff. He'd he'd be good in this market. And you were really only out of soccer for like six months, really. Yeah, things, not right? not a ton of time. And and it was very much my intention to mm-hmm. um, either get back in mm-hmm. with the league or or try uh, working for a club. I think at that point, and I guess to this day, I, I wanted to to be involved in soccer and to to have an impact on the the growth of the game in the United States. Cool. So you go from. The work at the leverage agency on the marketing side, kind of the marketing communication side, and you get the job at MLS. So it's the winter of two thousand nine. Yeah, I moved to Chicago in February of of ten. Two thousand ten, and uh, started out as their press officer. Um, who, who did you report to? I reported to a woman named Becky Carroll. Okay, um, and and that was a a challenge. Um, I think. You know, I guess for people listening to a podcast about sports marketing, that there's a lot of good things that you can learn. Mm-hmm. Um, but sometimes having a, a boss who is challenging, or uh, maybe not necessarily in the right fit for their role, um, you can learn a lot of the things that you don't want to do. Sure. Um, and you know, I would say that there was probably a couple of months there at the beginning when I wanted to quit. Mm-hmm. Um, Why didn't you? Uh, I think most people that I, you know, there was a couple of things. Most people that I talked to said, hey, you got to try to gut it out. The the thing that I landed on was I didn't want somebody else to effectively mess with what my dream was. Hmm. And, you know, I had set out this dream and this goal, like, hey, I want to work in soccer. And I felt like if I quit, I would be letting someone else dictate what I had said as a goal for myself. And so I tried to just find a way to find the positives in what I was doing and take a lot of notes about the way that I would do things differently if I ever was in the position, you know, like, hey, if I ever become a boss, I'm definitely not going to do it like this. It's a great lesson um, to learn. Yeah, it, 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 it turned out to be very valuable. And and all the things that she said no to, I put down, you know, people had given me the advice, like, write those things down. And maybe there will be an opportunity when you'll get to, you know, throw out these ideas or you're in charge of the budget or, you know, you're in charge of the direction. And um, so instead of, you know, I always tried to be respectful. I always tried to pitch her ideas that I was thinking of. And every time she said no, I, you know, accepted it with a plum or uh, some version of, of a plum. And, and I went back and, you know, wrote it down and said, all right, well, you know, maybe I'll get to use this at some point. Um, but I, I knew that I knew that quitting probably didn't help me accomplish Well, especially anything. I would think, you know, people probably went to bat for you at MLS too, and you don't want that to happen either. For sure. But, well, and I think, yeah, you're, I mean, and, and you, your parents are never going to accept this idea that, that you're quitting or giving up on something without really giving it a, a full right. go. and it was only a few months. So, so you're there, um, and then kind of walk us through the first season and what happened. Um. The, the first season was, it was challenging. We, you know, I, but um, I, I learned a lot. Mm-hmm. I learned how to, to interact with the players better. I learned how to interact with the coach. You start to get some of those feelings of how you work within an ecosystem, um, how you can 
work with other departments. I think you start to see how things are siloed and how you maybe want to Mm -hmm. eliminate some of those silos. And I think you start to, you know, if, if you're aware and I think you can start to see ways in which you can provide value to the business or to the club. Um, so while I felt like I wasn't always positioned really well from this manager, I decided that I would take a lot of these things on myself mm-hmm. and that I would try to find ways to be valuable to everyone. So instead of just becoming valuable to you know, one boss, I tried to provide value to other people. And I tried to make sure that I was spending time with as many different people as possible. And I did that at MLS as well. You know, I've, I've always felt like, you know, if your name is on the business card, regardless of, you know, the title on the business card, you should use the hell out of that thing. Mm-hmm. And you should put yourself in positions where you can talk to people. Almost anyone, if you say, hey, I'm interested in what you do, can you talk me through your path? to to hear um and you know and i've i've tried to you know do that with with everyone and i think when people would say oh you should meet this guy um and and some of it ends up you know uh, all like you realize that it's such a small world i think at one point when i was here in new york you said hey there's this guy steve brenner that that you should really meet um he has a pr agency and um, you know, he, he's out of LA and, you know, Steve was kind enough to, to meet with me and we got a coffee and, you know, you don't necessarily think that much of it. But then I moved to LA and one of the first calls I get is from Steve Brenner and he does stuff for the Dodgers. Steve, and- Steve is the kind of the, the mouth or the, the face of the Dodgers from a PR standpoint. He and Lon Rosen are one and two yeah. and, and a lot of other, you know, for boxing and for a lot of things. Uh, not just in LA, but around the country. So that's you know again. You, so you're building your network. Uh, so you're in Chicago, um, going through this kind of difficult time. Were there a couple people at the fire who either took you under your wing, un- under their wing, and really kind of helped you see a, a path that you could kind of stay there and, and grow into the next job that you had there? Yeah, for sure. I mean, after the the first year, uh, my boss left. Mm-hmm. Um, and the club hired a, a new president. Um, Who was that? Uh, Julian Posada. Mm-hmm. And I think he saw a lot of positives uh, in me. Um, and I think the greatest thing about the fire is it was a little bit of a build-your-own-adventure. Right. And I think that you know there are plenty of opportunities that are like that. Mm-hmm. Um, Making chicken salad, we like to call it. Yeah. So. And so... It, 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 you know, there were probably things that I had no business doing. Mm. Like what? Do you have an example? Because um, we'll, yeah. we'll get to the bobbleheads at one point. But, yeah, yeah, I mean, they they needed someone to oversee their broadcast. Mm-hmm. Um, wow. And, and, hey, you know, like... And, and you had no experience. You just... No, I didn't have a ton of experience, but they said, hey, do you want to do this? And mm-hmm. I said, yes. Um and, and so, you know, I called on people that I'd met and I started to, you know, you start to figure out, all right, how much does a truck cost? Um, wow. what, what does park and power mean? Mm-hmm. What, what is the, the elastic cost? What's around? an ENG? Yeah, an yeah. ENG? Like, so. and, and so those, those things, you know, 
I think especially when you're in that learning phase, if you're open to it, and then but that adds additional value because nobody else at the organization knows how to secure a truck or how these things work or, you know, and so I think you then start to be like, okay, these are, these are real things that, you know, are going to help me here. And I think help me in the long run. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so then, you know, they would say, Hey, do you want to take on this? Um, and, and I think slowly what you try, what I've always tried to do is, how can I find a way to, you know, provide creativity or excitement to different parts of the business? And, you know, I think a lot of people for a long time, and I think that this has changed now, but they viewed PR and especially, you know, someone who's like the press officer as somebody who crunches the stats, writes the press releases, and handles the players. I, I never wanted to be pigeonholed necessarily as the the stat guy mm-hmm. um, or, you know, somebody who is really good at game notes. Um, although those were things that, that I was good at. Um, but to me, it felt like, you know, all right, wh- what value can I provide to ticket sales? What value can I provide to our corporate sponsorship group? You know, what, what help did, do we need on the community side of things? And, and how can I put myself in positions to where all of these people think of, oh, let's ask Brendan. Yep. Or I trust Brendan's opinion on this. And, you know, as any good PR guy, you want to build that, like, trusted advisor with your president and, you know, the key executives within your organization. Um, but I wanted to try to do that from the top down to where I could have, you know, the your size and scope could be viewed as, hey, this guy, this guy's interested in what we're doing from a corporate partnership standpoint. Um, maybe he's got a cool idea that could differentiate us when we sign this deal. And then you can start to have those conversations like, hey, maybe we should talk before the deal is signed. Mm-hmm. Maybe we can provide additional value to a partner. Um, maybe we can, you know, there's additional revenue recognition for what we can provide to that partner. And then, you know, maybe we create the commercial and then they give us, you know, they give us money on top. So instead of sending that money to an agency, they were refund, you know, we're refunding it back into the club and reinvesting in what we're doing as a whole. And as the fire in Chicago, you're the fifth team? Probably, yeah. But, but in the mix, and I think the, the the reason of doing those things, especially for a a club or an organization, a brand, whatever it is that wants to be disruptive, is you have to be able to lean forward and you have to be able to storytell in different ways, as opposed to you know legacy teams or brands that are sitting there and everything is coming towards you. So yeah, I think you probably. My, my guess is that you probably learn a lot more leaning forward and being disruptive than sitting back and, and, you know, doing the same thing. And for better, for worse, a lot of the elite clubs in the world are no, they say no first. And and saying no first is a very difficult way, I think, especially when you're young, to try and grow your brand and and the opportunities that come along. It seems like you had a lot. So before we kind of move on to your second part of the job at the fire, 
Um, so you're still a manager at that point, or you, have you started to move up a little bit? Yeah, I think they my second year they may have named me as the director of mm. communication. And you're making and a living wage at that point. Yeah, I'm getting by. Right. Um, I think that no more dog walking at that point. No, no. I was walking fewer dogs. Um, you know, I, I think Did I you buy a dog. No, no did, didn't okay. buy a dog. A turtle. No, nothing. Goldfish. Nothing. Yeah, no. Um, I think that yeah. I mean the you know the compensation started to improve. I mean mm-hmm. you're still working in sports. Um, you know, and and I think you know you're still in a place where you you've maybe shown some value, but you still need to show more value before mm-hmm. you start asking for things. And so I think a lot of it is is being understanding of where you're at, and then putting yourself like. And, and, you know, my, my approach was if they're going to continue to give me these things, that's potentially more valuable than the compensation mm-hmm. is if I can continue to learn every facet of this business, maybe that's better than asking for a five grand raise. Great. Um, so that, that was sort of my approach. And there. how long were you with the fire? I was with the fire for three and a half years. Okay. So I'm going to turn to Tom now and ask Tom a question as he's sitting here with his headsets on. Do you know anybody in this room who has a bobblehead of themselves? Of themselves, no. You don't? <laughs> I have actually I have two, Brendan. Yeah. But the first one I got was from the Chicago Fire. And actually, I guess we should probably drop that into the the narrative of maybe we'll put it on the description. I'll send you a picture of my bobblehead. That's <laughs> of me of me holding a cell phone. So um, but it was it was amazing because one day Brendan called and said, I need a picture of you. I had no idea why. I figured this is a problem, but it wasn't. Maybe there was some kind of bigger infatuation I didn't know about. It wasn't. It was fine. Didn't tell my wife. Um, so we get to uh, a point, and this bobblehead shows up. But talk about, and, and, you know, again, I usually don't blow smoke, as people know, I guess, people who know me. But, you know, there are very few more creative and proactive people in the communications and storytelling business as Brendan. But talk a little bit about how the bobblehead idea came along and what was the goal and what was the outcome of it. So the, the fire did bobbleheads for select media, not just in Chicago, but around the country. Correct? Yeah, yeah. So we did um, – it, it was – the bobbleheads were the sort of the third part of a trilogy. Um, we had signed a, a, a big sponsorship deal for Quaker Oats to be – I have that kit too, by the way, with my name on the back. So. To be the uh, the Jersey Front sponsor of the Chicago Fire, yeah. and I think, you know, we we got called into a big meeting, and before the meeting, I went to the grocery store, and I you know went to the cereal aisle, and I grabbed you know the bottom of the cereal aisle, I grabbed the Quaker Oats container that you grew up with, mm-hmm. and. Um, you know, it's not instant oatmeal, but to me, that was this like iconic part of this, you know, I think historical company that had been in Chicago, you know, the fire have sort of prided themselves within the league of, of, I think having a, a tradition within Chicago, Chicago is a fantastic sports town and Chicago will always back a winner. Um, you know, we, we had some very middling seasons while I was there, but when the fire did well, um, the Tribune, the Suntown, everybody gets on board. Um, and, and that I always sort of appreciated about 
the Chicago media. Um, but we go in and, and, you know, the idea is Quaker wants to, you know, make a splash with, you know, the, they're entering into the world of soccer. Um, they're entering into the, the world of sports and they want to know how they can sort of do something differently. Um, so I, co- I go into the meeting and I set the Quaker Oats thing down and I say, I think that we should create custom kits and put them within these Quaker Oats canisters. Which I still have. So and we should send them out to, you know, 300 to 400 select media, um, you know, locally, nationally, and inter- internationally to sort of announce ourselves on the, uh, on the scene. Um, I said, I know that direct-to-mail uh, is an old-school way of doing it. Um, but this can be, you know, one part of it. We're going to have a video portion. We're going to have a digital way to, to roll this out. Um, but we'll be able to take these canisters. We can co-brand them. Um, and we can tell the story of how our two brands are interacting together. Um, and, and they loved it. So, so we did that for the first one. Um, then we had a, a player, a rookie, who was doing well. Um, so for the Rookie of the Year campaign, we did a, a life cereal box. Who's that? Um, Austin Berry. Mm-hmm. Um, he's no longer in the league. Uh, didn't really do that well after that, but he won rookie, but, rookie he, of the Year. And he had a hell of a cereal box. And he had a hell of a cereal box. Right. So I know Austin uh, and his family still have a ton of cereal boxes in their house and can always look back on that. Mm-hmm. So the, the third part was, uh, you know, bobbleheads, I think, are, are a thing and, um, and certainly, a, I think, something that people find interesting. Um, but for me, I wanted to personalize it and try to take it a step further. Uh, so we, we, we created over 300 customized bobbleheads with branded packaging and we sent to to media members, uh, uh, you know, locally, like nationally, and internationally. Um, and, and my thinking was, you know, they they may not always think of the Chicago Fire and Quaker Oats when they're thinking about soccer. But if I can give someone something that tells a story and has a real personal connection to them, they're going to put that on their desk. And maybe next time that Grant Wall is thinking about a story or, you know, Joe Favorito is thinking about, you know, a PR stunt, they're going to look over and they're going to see a bobblehead in their own likeness that Brendan Hannon and the Chicago Fire sent to him. Mm -hmm. And what was funny about that is, to to segue some into the next job... um, I'd, I'd already been hired by the Galaxy. Mm-hmm. And Chris Klein, you know, I'd flown out to L.A. in the spring of 2013. And I met Chris, I met Dan Beckerman, um, I met Kelly Cheeseman, the, the AG folks. And, um, you know, I, I was very reluctant. I never thought of myself as an L.A. guy. Um, but they offered this opportunity to build a team and it seemed like it would be a really unique thing. So Chris offers me the job in April. And 
and and I say and yes. Season, season had just started at that point. Season has just started, and and they're bare bones. They, their digital staff had left. Um, this is the galaxy. The galaxy, mm-hmm. and and they needed me. You know, they Mike Altieri, the the longtime mm-hmm. Kings uh, PR guru, had had sort of been, I think, working double duty. They needed to get me in there. It was Be- Beckham was there at that point? No, they David were. had just left. Okay. Um, so it's not a great time. For it's not a great time. Right. And, and so Chris says, hey, you know, he offers me the job in April, says, can you start in May? And I say no. <laughs> and he, he says, why not? And I say... Man, this is going to sound really stupid, uh, but but I have this bobblehead project that I'm working on, and and I have to see it out. He says, "Okay, let me think about it." He calls me back and he's like, "We really need you." And I said, "Chris, I understand that, but the fact of the matter is, I have to finish out this bobblehead project. I've been working on it for the better part of a year." And I, I owe it to, to the team that I'm with now to, to finish strong and to complete this project. And I know it sounds stupid, but this is the once I'm there, you'll get these type of, you know, harebrained ideas, and I will be 100% committed to you and that club if you can give me this time. And I said it would mean a great deal to me, and it, I think hopefully it shows you how loyal that I will be to your club and your organization when the time comes. And, and he said, you know, I can't argue with that. Good luck with everything. Allowed me to start in July. Um, he saw the Bobblehead Project. It, it, was a, you know, it, it was a success, and I think a lot of people, it, it's built a sort of long-standing connection do you, with... Do you still get questions, by the way, about the bobblehead from, from random media people? Yeah, or people will tag me that they are taking it to their kid's school. Um, or they will see it and they'll shoot me a text message. Um, there was a long-time soccer blogger uh, by the name of Bruce McGuire. Um, he started the Do Nord Soccer podcast, um, probably before there was podcasts. Um and he called me when he got it, and he was crying. Mm. And he was like, I've never received something that had so much thought put into, into it and was so personal to me. Yep. And so, you know, I think everyone felt that way. And so it's been able to, I think, build a longstanding connection with a lot of media members and influencers who... Uh, I think still have that sitting on their desk or still recall uh, that we did something for them. So, so just to be clear, I mean, you did the research so that these were all customized. They were not, this was not like a general, here's a Noah Syndergaard bobblehead. These were customized to each and every person. So it, it yeah, if it got sent to, to Grant Wall, mm-hmm. it looked like Grant Wall. Yep. If it got sent to Kyle Martino and Arlo White, it looked like Kyle Martino and Arlo White. So... When Mine's holding a cell phone. Yeah. yeah. Um, so that took a tremendous amount of work, and I think people appreciated it. The other side of it, before we leave uh, the fire, there's two questions. But one is, how did you get the budget approved for that? And how did you justify the expense? Um, 
the the budget was a, a tricky one. They, they weren't cheap. Right. Um, but they're not ridiculously expensive. It was two, three dollars a piece, maybe. Or no, no, yet? no. Personalized bobbleheads are like around a hundred a clip. Really? Yeah. I better not drop mine then. I no yeah, yeah. They're not that much anymore, though. I don't think. I think they've doing a lot less. they've gotten cheaper. For yeah. me, quality was important, though. Yeah. Um, What's the company, by the way? Give them a shout out. I, I, I don't. Yeah, I don't. So, I don't recall the okay. company. I feel. Yeah, I apologize. Hopefully, they're not listening to this. Uh, we won't send it to them. Yeah. Um, um, so it was a hundred dollars a pop at three hundred bobbleheads. Yeah. And then, how did you get that? Who had to approve it? It was at this point. I'd built equity with Quaker, okay. and so Quaker was. This was part of an, an active a brand activation. It was a brand activation Great. for Quaker. So we were able to. You know, they'd seen success. They'd seen the the media pickup. Um, they saw the the brand recognition. They saw these individual stories of mm-hmm. how their brand was being tied to to our brand. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it's one of those that um, I think by the third iteration they were they were comfortable with the spend, knowing that uh, it was going to get them a, a certain amount of recognition and that. Uh, at that point, they'd sort of deemed that the juice was worth the squeeze. And then the last question is, the Galaxy, was it you who went after them, or did you suddenly get a call from someone at the Galaxy saying, hey, we have this opening? Um, they, they recruited me. Great. Um, and that was based off of kind of, my guess is, your success in Chicago from what people saw, and kind of the brand equity that you built both at MLS and with the fire, correct? Yeah. Great. Yeah, it was, you know, they, they had... Uh, they had tried to recruit me, and and I said I wasn't interested. Mm. Um, and it, uh, I didn't think of myself as an LA guy. Um, you know, I enjoyed living in Chicago, uh, and I had a, a pretty good conversation with with my dad, um, who effectively, you know, said, uh, I, "I will kick your ass if you turn down the top team in the league without at least having a conversation." Good. Um, so that type of fatherly advice, I think, mm-hmm. uh, was well received, and and you know, I, I had to at least have the conversation. And once I started to have the conversations, I realized that the opportunity was was very good there, and I would have a real opportunity to grow. I think both personally and professionally by moving there. And on the professional side, you get there at the Galaxy. It's now head of. Not just their communications, but their social, um, a much bigger job. When I had left the fire, I, had, I was overseeing a lot of those different practices. I was overseeing marketing, communications, digital, broadcast. Bobbleheads. Um, and bobbleheads. Right. Uh, when I got to L.A., I was the senior director of um, uh, communications and digital uh, and I sort of half did the broadcast stuff with uh, the gentleman who was overseeing marketing. Um, but when I got there, it was very bare bones. Their digital team had left. Uh, we had a couple of PR people who I think had sort of, you know, grown wary of the role. Um, and so it, it was a real opportunity to take a look at everything and decide what was going to be the best next steps for the business. Mm. And you get to L.A., stadium was open at that point? Yeah, stadium okay. is open. Um, but what's not there yet are two NFL teams, another Major League Soccer team. Yeah. Um, the Lakers were still good at that point, I would imagine. The Clippers were 
kind of a mess around Donald Sterling. Correct? Yeah, I mean the Clippers, the Clippers still were. Had the Kings won the cup when you got there? The Kings had won the cup in 2012. Right. Um, and you got there when? I got there in 2013. Okay, so you're following um, that. So yeah, I mean it, there was still a second team in the marketplace from a soccer perspective. Chivas USA still right. existed. Correct. Yep. Um, were they playing in your your building? They were playing right. in our building. Okay, and and we sort of I think knew on the face of it. My whole approach was that either Chivas USA is going to get their act together or there's going to be another team in L.A. Mm-hmm. Um, that is going to, to I think, you know, provide competition um, for the Galaxy. Um, so our approach, you know, starting then was to continue to say, all right, you know, what, what can we do to bolster our brand? What can we do to, to grow our market share? Um, 2014 ends up being a pretty magical year. Um, you know, I, I, a very surreal moment when you're at LAX and, you know, Landon Donovan pulls you aside and says, hey, I haven't told anybody this, but I'm going to retire at the end of the year and I want you to plan everything. Wow. Um, Is that because he had the trust in you, obviously? Yeah, and I think that we uh, you, you build were you, that. You were the only person at the airport with it. Yeah, so. <laughs> there were others. I think I think you build that rapport, and <clears throat> um, and you know it, it's always you know when you get to a new team. I got there in the middle of the season in 2013. There's always a, an adjustment. You know, you're, you're the new guy, and you have to wear that for mm-hmm. a little while. Um, and I also think in, in any job, things sort of happen in in three year arcs and. I think in the first year, you're always figuring out sort of how things work. And in the second year, you can, I think you know where everything is, and you can start to really, like, put your imprint on it. I think by the third year, you're at the point where you can ask for favors, and you can, I think, really control the pace of things. Um, so this was the, the second year, you know, we... We did Landon retiring. We won MLS Cup. And uh, I think that that, you know, has sort of, you know, it started to set me up for, for the things that were to come. So we'll touch on those things to come in a second. But you never lost that proactive spirit, though, Brendan. I mean, I think that was really important. You're now in the second largest media market in the country, still having to kind of claw your way to make sure you're relevant in the conversation with, you know, whoever it is, plus everything else that goes on in LA. Yeah. Uh, talk about some of those things from the coloring book to some of the other things that you did, frankly, that still very few teams do. Yeah, I, I think, I mean, you talk about cutting through the clutter, and I think MLS as a whole is is still in that, uh, in a position where we have to find ways to, to differentiate ourselves, um, whether that's individual clubs or as a league as a whole. Um for me, it's all about storytelling, mm-hmm. and it's all about creating things. Um, you know, I, I think I'm a, a decent enough team PR guy. I think I'm a decent enough marketing guy. Um, I'm decent enough digital guy. But I think for me, I, I'm where I'm good is is creating things and trying to really tell stories. Um, you know, I still think that you know my crux of creative writing is sort of what's helped differentiate me from other people and I think you know coming up the way that I did has made me feel like 
you can't get complacent and you always have to be trying to scrap and claw for what you can get and um, you want to share those stories. Obviously going from Chicago to LA, you inherit a different size and scope. Um, you, you maybe work with a, a club who has a, a better budget um, or a, a willingness to, to be progressive. Uh, I've been extremely lucky that you know Chris Klein, our president, Dan Beckerman with, with AEG, uh, really believe in some of the things that I'm open to doing, um, and they they've let me run with it. Um, and you know, a lot of times that can be hard. Uh, I think at a number of places you, you really have to, you know, there's such a battle internally just to get the things to happen externally. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you have that type of, I think, internal buy-in, uh, they've really allowed me to be creative. And, you know, we have a, a great team. Chris Thomas, one of the first guys that I hired, um, had worked for the New York Cosmos before. He'd worked for the Galaxy before that. Um, and so we've sort of served as great foils for one another to, to say, hey, like, you know, I think a, a Viewmaster would be cool. Um, those beach things, ta- beach towels, right? beach towels. Um, you know, in in you know, I think that there's been some that that have been very good, and and some that maybe haven't come off the the way that we've wanted to. Mm-hmm. Um, but on a whole, the it's, coloring uh, books. I like the coloring books. Coloring very books. Creative. We with did crayons, branded Galaxy branded crayons. Yeah, we did a we did notebook. A, there were notebooks at one point. Yeah, right? the the old like Scholastic notebooks. Mm-hmm. We did. We did Viewmasters. We've done, you know, we, we try to always sort of keep it fresh and, and send people something unique. And and to my knowledge, I don't know of another MLS team that does that, correct? Nationally, at least? Yeah, I don't know. I think... very few. Let's put it this way. Very few teams of all the five team sports do something like that. I know the, yeah. the Tigers do. Um, you guys do. I don't really know of a lot of other teams, but it's a great best practice whether you're on the marketing communication side of a college anywhere else those people forget that you still like to get things from the u.s mail yeah i I mean i think anyone loves you know going swag yeah you get something and and Mm. i think it it shows that people are thinking of you yep um and it's uh i mean it's obviously a a sheep in wolf's clothing that, that you want them to be thinking about you um wolf and sheep's yeah one or the other yeah that that that's the way it goes um, so yeah, it, uh, it, I think we've always tried to to find ways to mm-hmm. to share our brand story and and do it in a way that keeps us really engaged because mm-hmm. we we don't want to do something that we've done before and we want it to be creative and unique so that it's pushing us to to think differently. I think the sheep and wolf's clothing would be kind of cool <laughs> for next year. But anyway, yeah. So in the last part, I want to talk about your evolution beyond. The communication side now overseeing the marketing side as well how did that come about and how did that role change from when you got to the galaxy to where you are now yeah you know i think all of these things happen i think somewhat serendipitously you put yourself in in a good position and um the gentleman who was overseeing marketing for for the galaxy took a job with the, the san jose sharks and um you know i think the natural sort of uh, the natural play for the club was to, to I think, provide me an opportunity. Um, I had a certain way that I wanted to do some of the things, and 
Um, I, I've always wanted to have everything be cohesive. Um, and so we were already doing a lot of the creative stuff. I think this allowed us to, to make it even more cohesive. You know, here's how our digital marketing spend is going to interact with our social spend. Here's what the creative looks like, and here's how that aligns with the, the out-of-home marketing. Um, so it, it just allowed, I think, an opportunity for there to be uh, f- you know, fewer barriers for entry to, to those conversations. And the group that I've built, it's all about thinking about all of those things. So uh, you don't, you know, if you work on the digital team, you don't just think about what you're doing digitally. You think about how PR is impacted. And everyone sort of, I think, is able to, to work together within an ecosystem where the goals are very clearly defined. Um, you know, it's about relevance and revenue. Uh, and then you, you need to, to push the boundaries. Mm-hmm. And um, basically, with everyone on my team, I, I want them how to... Big, how big is your team now? I oversee about a group of about 24 people. That's a lot of people. So we, I oversee game presentation, events, operations, mm-hmm. um, and then our supporter groups as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it, I think it's about empowering the team that you have. And so to do that, you know, I want everyone to ask a couple of simple questions. Um, you know, is, is it good for our brand? Uh, is it good for our, our fans? Uh, is it good for our players? And is it good for the city of Los Angeles? If you can answer those questions, I want you to feel empowered that you can do anything. How many of them have to be yes? Um, you'd like for all of them to be yes. Um, if there's a no, that requires additional conversation. Okay. Um, you, you, I mean, you usually don't want to, if there's no's to, to key things, mm-hmm. um, if it's not good for our brand and if it's not good for our fans and it's, you know... Well, just one. <laughs> yeah. A so, um, couple of other quick questions. How important is, is it to have a seat at the table for, from when you were on the communication side for the business to run efficiently? I think it's massively important. Mm-hmm. I think that... Um, I think that that type of trusted advisor role um, provides a lot of value and, and I think that in a lot of ways, the communications professional serves as a bit of a canary in a coal mine. Mm-hmm. And you're able to say, well, if we do this, I think it looks like this. If we do this, I think it plays out like this. And I think that your key executives like to have you at the table um, so that you can you know, provide that type of guidance and you can be that you know, truth teller that they're paying you to be. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think that it, you have to work and earn that. Um, but I, I think the, the seat at the table, it, it can really help impact your business in a positive way. And then we didn't touch on the player and the coach side. And you talked a little bit about building the trust and the relationship. Talk really briefly for a couple minutes just about the relationship with a player like, you know, a pretty good player you have right now who you've helped build a brand yeah. in Zlatan, for sure, uh, or some of the other players like Landon Donovan, and being inclusive of all the people that are around him or her whispering in their ear and telling them what to do. How, how are you able to balance that? 
Yeah, I mean... And talk about your star and everything that you built out with him. Yeah, so. the, the Zlatan project has been a, a really good one. Um, the unique thing about Zlatan is that... And tell everybody who he is just so they don't yeah, know. Yeah, Zlatan Ibrahimovic, he, he's a, a Swedish striker. Um, he has played for uh, Ajax, um, Inter Milan, AC Milan, FC Barcelona, Manchester United, uh, Paris Saint-Germain. Pretty much the biggest clubs Crap across clubs. Europe. Yes. Um, he's featured in uh, three World Cups. Um, he scored over 500 goals. Mm-hmm. And he's got this massive presence as a, uh, a media darling. Um, and, and how many people are around him now? Let's, you know, we should talk just about him. So. That's actually the unique thing about Zlatan is it's just me. Um, he trusts me to put him in positions um, obviously, he has an agent. He has a lawyer, um, but but there's not a, a lot of layers to to those conversations. And how long did it take you to build that trust? He was pretty open from the start. So he kind of knew what he was getting involved with when he came to LA. Or I why? think I think a little bit of that. I think you earn a. You know, we we did a really cool video with him um, where it's him and a lion. Um, and, and he says, you know, dear Los Angeles, welcome to Zlatan. Hmm. Uh, there was an ad that was placed in, in the paper, um, a full-page ad that just said, dear Los Angeles, you're welcome. Um, so I think that he early on understood that, you know, I had a good understanding of what he was trying to accomplish. Mm-hmm. And I think that when he sees those things come off well, um, and become international news, mm-hmm. uh, that sort of builds a, a trust of like, uh, maybe this guy knows what he's doing. And and from there, you can continue to prove yourself over and over. So just to prove that, to go back to that point one last time, when you have people who are s- surrounded by large groups and probably not as many in MLS as in other sports, but there are some megastars who I'm sure have lots of people around them, how do you balance that? Um, or build consensus, even more important. Yeah, I mean, we've done some projects with David Beckham, and, and he's got a very built-out team. Um, you have to communicate openly and clearly, and you have to share what the objectives are. Mm-hmm. Um, here's why this benefits the, the club. Here's why this benefits the player. Um, here's, you know, and, and some of it's, I think, demonstrating an understanding to say no when you need to say no. Um, but to present the things that you think are, are most vitally important um, for you as the team and for them as the player. Um, but, but that open communication, that honesty, uh, that trust, I think once you build that, it's easy to manage with some of the layers. Um, and you have to understand where they're coming from. You have to understand why they may not want to do something that you think is, is really important. So seeing and understanding what that looks like, um, I think allows you to, to, I mean, it better positions you to communicate to them. Um, you know your audience, you know how, like, there are certain things that they want to hear, um, and I think that you work through those. Um, and before we get to the last two questions, 24 people, you said, report into your, how do you manage your time and how important is time management for you? Time management is, is huge. Um, you know, a, a number of years ago, uh, a gentleman who who's oversees everything at U.S. Soccer, uh, Jay Burhalter, challenged me when I was in Chicago to try to spend 
two months where you catalog everything that you do in 15-minute increments. Um, it's really hard mm. uh, just because you get caught up. But if you can do it and stay true to it, uh, you can really see areas in which you can improve. Um, and so back then, I think, you know, uh, I when I was with the fire, I was able to say, okay, the first part of my day I have to dedicate to the team. So I can do game notes from 7.30 to 8.30. And this, you know, when you're a one-man band with some of these things, you have to mm-hmm. become better at it. And then I can inform the players of their media obligations between 8.30 and 9. Then, you know, we, you can staff training, so on and so forth. So that exercise has taught me, you know, you want to, you have to figure out where to focus your time. And, and in this day and age, you have a ton of meetings, you have a ton of calls. Uh, there's not always a ton of time where you can just say, hey, let's knock out emails or let's plan this. Um, so I, I try to get in on the earlier side. I try to do planning from seven to nine, and then I know that I'm going to have meetings. Um, but you have to be able to manage that because not only do you manage all of these people on the front office side, you're managing you know 35 egos on the team side. Mm-hmm. And the way that it sort of has all taken me back to my bartending days at Juanita's in Boulder. Um, everybody wants everybody wants something different. Mm-hmm. And the way that Zlatan wants to be treated is different than the way that Steven Gerrard wants to be treated. The way that Landon Donovan wants you to communicate requests is different than the way that Robbie Keane wanted requests communicated. Some guys want detailed emails. Some guys say, just tell me where to be and what to do. Some guys want you to, hey, can you copy my agent? Can you copy my PR person? Like, let's set a weekly call and evaluate the opportunities. Um, so you, you're, you're moving and you're, you're handing out, you know, Miller High Life's and gin and tonics and wiping the bar and you're figuring out how to keep everyone uh, happy within that. But you always have to keep moving and you have to be mindful of what each person wants and needs in their day-to-day. And so the last question, which it leads us to, is how do you stay constant in everything that's going on? And with all the people that you've worked with, the lessons that you've learned, for a lot of people listen to these podcasts or either coming into an industry, changing jobs, what advice do you give people when, they, they first, when the young Brendan Hannon comes to you? Um, the, the first part of your question... You know, I, I've never been great at being comfortable. Um, I think maybe, you know, my New York experience and maybe the start of the Chicago experience. And I think there was probably some level like, as this thing going to pan out? Is, is the league going to continue to grow? Um, and, and, you know, you maybe always felt like, am I going to get fired? So I always wanted to be... I always want to continue to try to define myself and build that value. Mm -hmm. And I want to show people that I have that value. Um, So I've tried not to get complacent. Um, And I think when you manage a lot of people, sometimes your job is to to motivate. Um, And and you have to self-motivate. But, you know, 
for me, it, it, I thrive off of this idea of creating. Mm-hmm. And so what more can I create? And, and is that, you know, more sustainability within our department? Um, is that creating a story? Is that creating something that I think will live, you know, past my potential time um, with the club? Um, from an advice standpoint, I, think I that was the advice. <laughs> so. I, I would I, I would tell people not to get discouraged. Yeah. I think it's easy mm. in any industry that you know maybe you have a, a boss that you don't like or. You know, the, the job isn't exactly what you thought it was going to be. Um, but I, I don't, you can't let other people get in the way of your dreams. And I think that you should be mindful of, of what you care about and what you're trying to accomplish and, and figure out how you can uh, work with others to, to make that possible. So the, the last part, I guess, the 1A of that question is, are there people that you follow to get news? That's kind of what I meant. You know, do you use Twitter? Do you use other social handles? How do you stay up to date with everything that's going on in the industry? Yeah. Um, you know, I would say I would say that we try not to replicate a ton that other people are doing. Um, so do you go to sites? Are there sites that you look at for best practices? Or you just kind yeah, of pick it up as you go along? I think I try to think it up as mm-hmm. I go along. Good. Um, I mean, obviously, you know, I go on Twitter, mm-hmm. Instagram, uh, I think that there are a number of brands who, you know, do things. Like, it, like who? I think Nike and Adidas do a really good job. It's good the way of, you balance that out. Of storytelling. So, mm. um, you want to throw Under Armour in too? Just to no, kind of no, I'd stick so, with those. So. Uh, I think that there are some... Quick roads we love. So, yeah, so. I think that there are some brands that, that mm. are very good at, I think... Being inventive and and trying to, to push the boundaries, mm-hmm. um, and I think you know you, you look at individual storytelling, but you know I've read some of those leadership books. You know, leaders eat last, and um, you look at some of those. But for me, I've always just found you know reading East of Eden is easier for me to wow. to find story like it's very old school Congratulations. yeah so. that that to me mm-hmm. you know those and that's probably the creative writing background but that to me gives me more you know insight on how i can potentially be better at my work than reading something that's directed towards this idea of here's how you should lead um cool so yeah um and then lastly where do people find you on social media and where should they go to find out everything going on about the galaxy? Uh, you can follow me at Brendan Hannon. Um, that's my handle on Twitter and Instagram. Mm-hmm. Um, and then LAGalaxy.com and at LAGalaxy. That's cool. where all the, the good stuff happens. Brendan, it's been a long ride from Juanita to Boulder to the head of marketing communications at the LA Galaxy. Thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thanks so much. I appreciate the time and hopefully it's valuable to somebody out there. Somebody, one of the three (laughs) or four people. Tom Cerny's sitting there nodding his head. So once again, this was the Columbia University Sports Podcast, The Cusp Show. I'm Joe Favorito for my co-host, Tom Richardson. We'll see you down the road.